it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one. And I hope that you'll share it with your friends if you find it of interest. Uh, today, we have a slightly different conversation than our normal focus on American politics. It's a, a two co-authors of a new book, Always Faithful, a story of a Marine major, Tom Sherman, and his friend and Afghan interpreter, Zainila Zak Zaki. Uh, and their weird sort of connection that they had during the course of the war in Afghanistan, working together as both uh, not just a a translator, but as someone who was truly fighting alongside uh, American and allied forces, uh, and really the challenge of trying to get him out of a situation where he was going to be uh, penalized, have to suffer, and perhaps even be killed because of his work for the Americans in Afghanistan. It's a story that is told in this new book, Always Faithful, uh, and we had the chance to speak to both Tom and Zach about their experience uh, and everything that they went through during the fall of Kabul and what came after, something that obviously grabbed the attention of Americans and uh, allied forces the world over who had invested so much effort into the Afghan war uh, and experience and saw so much of it uh, come to naught in terms of, of the ramifications of the Taliban takeover over of Afghanistan that we saw last year. The book is Always Faithful, uh, Tom Schumann and Zach Zaki coming up next. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Tom and Zach, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks for having us. So I want to start with this. Uh, you know, obviously, this is a book that is a very personal story for both of you. Given the differences in your backgrounds, uh, what was it like to try to work together in such a, an extreme environment? How did you establish the rapport that you needed in order to get the job done? Initially, it was just a, a matter of necessity. You know, I needed a translator. I had to speak to the villagers. I had to speak to the Afghan army. Uh, I, I quickly realized that Zach had additional capabilities and that he could also help me understand cultural cues to, to, to interpret the norms within the Afghan culture, within the Pashtu culture. And, and, and so that was um, something that he helped facilitate. But, but beyond that, the trust really began when we were under fire. And in those moments, it was clear that Zach was there, you know, ready to contribute much more than just translating. He was there to fight alongside us. And so whether that was his active role in spoiling and an, a Taliban ambush or holding security when somebody got wounded, uh, he, he demonstrated that he was really just a member of the platoon and, uh, that's kind of really what started to solidify that bond. Zach, when you uh, first met Tom, what was the point where you felt like he was someone who you could 
work with more closely, you know, where you could establish that kind of bond? Yeah, when I, I decided to join the U.S. forces uh, and go to my interpretation job, uh, when I met uh, Major Tom, he was lieutenant at that time, and uh, when I see him, he uh, looks uh, uh, pretty good, like his accent and everything. I like him, and uh, one of our POC introduced me with him, and then we just started our work and uh, accept all the risk for my country and U.S. government. Uh, uh, then uh, we just did what we had to do. You know, uh, one of the things that I think has to be challenged in, in any circumstance like this is that when you're uprooted out of the environment uh, that you come from and you go into a situation like Afghanistan, Tom, you you have to feel like everything is very unfamiliar and that there's a level of paranoia that sets in about not being able to get uh, and recognize those social cues that you mentioned. What was a, a good example of of something where Zach helped you read a situation that was going on and understand it in a way that you wouldn't have without it. Yeah, I, I think he really helped a lot with the army actually, because we were working with the Afghan army soldiers. And uh, when I approach someone who's a soldier or a Marine, I expect them to be on time, prepared, uh, ready for the mission. And Ask the, you know, there's a joke about Afghan time, you know, they kind of, it's pretty relative. And, and so <laughs> I've heard that <laughs> uh, as a Marine, he helped explain me to, to kind of make sure that I didn't get too frustrated uh, with the Afghan partner force. And, and also he kind of communicated to the Afghan soldiers like, Hey, uh, this is not how the U S works. The U S actually stays on the schedule and, 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 and the expectation is a lot more serious. And so it was important because at the time we were trying to build and, and support and train and advise a partner force that was hopefully going to maintain the defense of their country. And so uh, keeping that relationship up was vital to the long-term security uh, of the country. And so uh, I probably would have been a little overly exasperated uh, with, with those soldiers uh, had Zach not kind of been there as a buffer. You know, Zach, one of the things that, you know, has to be a challenge for you in this situation is looking into the long term. You know, obviously in the short term, you could see the advantages perhaps of, of doing the work that you were doing, but there had to be concern in the back of your head about what the ramifications would be if uh, the allied effort failed, if, if the approach that was being used there you know, ultimately uh, didn't uh, deliver on its promise. How concerned were you at that point uh, when you were working so closely with uh, with Tom that this would be a situation that could create challenges for you in the future, challenges for your family and your loved ones as well? Yeah, I was uh, thinking about uh, a future of uh, my country, uh, the future of our 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 new and young uh, boys and kids, girls. Uh, that's why I accept all the challenges 
all that risk. I, I when I accept it, uh, go to the minefield, go to the war, work with the U.S. Uh, Marines, work with the U.S. Army. Uh, we work for a peaceful, a brightness Afghanistan, and also especially for the U.S. and U.S. government and whole world for the peace of whole world. Uh, which is uh, which was tourism. We were fighting against tourism, so we we are debate them and uh, uh, make a peace in the whole world, not only for Afghanistan and America. Mm-hmm. Tom, you write about coming back to the U.S. in 2011, feeling exhausted and feeling frustrated by what you came back and found. Um, And it seemed to me when I was reading that part of this book that you spoke for pretty much everyone I know at your age level, which is a little bit below mine, um, closer to my brother's age, who who, like you is a a veteran of Afghanistan, um, that they felt like they had run into situations where despite their own ambition to serve the country, uh, to express themselves in, in courageous ways when it came to the challenges that they faced, that they were hemmed in by bureaucracy, by leadership that made poor decisions or didn't understand what was going on. Uh, and they felt frustrated that they couldn't get certain decisions addressed or problems dealt with in a way that would actually help the people who were in harm's way. Tell me a little bit about that frustration, where it came from. And how you tried to make a difference to the degree that you could uh, in helping deal with those problems. Yeah, uh, I mean, I was a lieutenant and and no one is asking lieutenant for strategic advice. And, uh, but it was very clear that the tactical reality, the reality that I was seeing in front of me on the ground was, was not understood at higher echelons. And um, I, you know, at the end of the day, I have to focus on the enemy. You know, that that's that every day, I, I don't have the luxury of thinking about how we're going to govern Afghanistan, how we're going to develop an economy in Afghanistan. How, I, I, all I can do is I'm, I'm trying to leave the base that I'm at and I'm being shot at. And, 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 and so I've got to lead these Marines uh, through minefields and, and ambushes. And so I, I would just say that when there were like tactical directives that came down from senior leadership that talked about using courageous restraint, accepting more risks to the troops, because we were we we were so close to winning the you know the hearts and minds, and so if we would just take more risk to ourselves, uh, then more Afghans were going to be inspired to to come join us. And uh, it seemed like you trying to take a playbook out of the Iraq Awakening and just script write it into like this is what will will happen, but that was. Yeah. It never appeared on the cusp of that while we were there doing what we do as infantrymen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zach, in terms of your experience, uh, there obviously became a point where 
being an interpreter, being someone who was uh, working with uh, the American forces and the like, uh, started to be something that was very dangerous and that could get uh, threats of all manner at your door. You, uh, you have a portion in here where you write about those uh, letters uh, showing up uh, at uh, other uh, interpreters' houses and uh, warnings to turn themselves into the Taliban for punishment. When did you know that this was going to be a situation where uh, if the power dynamic changed, uh, you were going to have to take the incredible step uh, of uh, getting your family out in order in order to protect them? Yeah. As I said before, uh, we start, I started my SIV process in 2016 because when I started work with American and uh, in Afghanistan uh, in 2010, I was um, I was trading from that time because uh, I joined the Marines. I, I worked with the Army, and uh, I was thinking about that if the government get collapsed and if uh, the SIV didn't accept our case, we we're gonna get die. Uh, we were our uh, hopeless uh, from my life. Uh, we already sacrificed ourselves mm-hmm. to for our country for for the peace of world, as I say, you know. And always, uh, I was a peer of dead from the enemy. And uh, if. Uh, they didn't give me the citizenship or visa. Uh, still, I don't. Ho- I didn't have hope if they deport me again. Uh, it's gonna be the same thing. They tried to poison you. Yeah, they 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 tried a lot of ways to find me and kill me. They poisoned me and uh, just uh, looking for me to kill me. Mm-hmm. Tom. Uh, you know, when you first heard about the kind of experience that he was going through, uh, what did you do? What did you believe you had to do in order to take steps to make sure that he'd be able to get out of there alive? Well, in 2016, we, we still had a belief that there was a program that was, that was designed to support them would, would in fact, uh, support them. And so, you know, the, this program makes a lot of sense that they set up this SIV pro- program for the very reason that Zach just described is that because he allied and supported the U.S., he was then subsequently persecuted. And so we recognize that we put a mark on our on our interpreters and our allies and so that we had to do something to to alleviate that persecution. And so you have this SIV program. So from 2016 to 17, we spend the whole year trying to fill out all this paperwork and submitting it and get denied. And, and, and really there's, it was always opaque. There was nothing ever kind of very clear about what we weren't meeting, what we could do to rectify it. It was, uh, it was all, you know, frustrating really from the, the beginning. But then when the president made the announcement that we were leaving and I said, what, what would happen if there were no U S forces in Afghanistan? Zach said, my, me and my family will be killed. And so at that point, that's when I, I, I said, okay, well, uh, time to go all in on this. And, and I started a little media guerrilla marketing campaign through social media. And, and, and that's when I started to kind of try to build a coalition uh, through the media, through political support, 
through anybody who, who was willing um, to, to get behind this issue. And, and, and that's really where things started to pick up speed last summer mm -hmm. uh, as, the, as the country started to collapse. I think for a lot of Americans, and feel free to disagree, uh, they kind of, uh, kind of assumed this is something that the military would take care of that it would be something that would be, you know, just a, a part of the overall uh, effort when it came to leaving Afghanistan. Um, why, why wasn't it? Uh, and why do you think that it took, you know, campaigns like yours to bring this issue to the fore and for people to pay attention to it? I can't, you know, speak to the, the nation at large as to what we expected um, as we left Afghanistan, I, I can't imagine that anyone thought it would be clean. Uh, I, I think people didn't anticipate it looking a lot more like uh, Vietnam than anyone probably would have liked it to. Uh, I, I think part, part of it, as Afghanistan started to collapse, it caught people's attention, but it was still just a story over there. And it was, it was a sad story. Uh, it was a tragic story, but it wasn't personal. And so, you know, for a story to matter, there's gotta be a character and, it, and there's gotta be a face to that character. And so that's, that's really where um, Zach assumed some risk putting his identity out there. But, but as soon as people can connect with a, a person they you know, they become more personally involved and connected to the story. And I think that's what really, why Zach's story became so central um, is because it really resonated with people and, and he's got four children and a wife and he's not just a, a faceless guy in this crowd outside the airport. He's, he's this guy who served with the Marines and his name is Zach. And so that, that's, that's kind of what was our, our strategy for our campaign uh, get him out. And, and, and in a lot of ways it worked in that, it did create the attention that we, we were hoping and it did create the advocacy that we were hoping. It's just that despite massive support behind us, it still didn't move his actual application at all. Mm -hmm. Zach, there's this moment in the story where it really feels like you're kind of giving up and saying goodbye, where there's this message that you, that you send and it basically is saying, you know, have a happy life, go on, live your life, et cetera. And it sounds like you're giving up. Did you feel like you were giving up in that moment? Uh, yeah. In 2017, uh, I sent, uh, yeah, I sent a message to my, my brother, Tom, and I asked uh, him for help. Uh, because uh, 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 my life was always in the danger. I cannot go out uh, from my house. Even I can get a job. Uh, the, the enemy just uh, spying me everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I, I asked uh, help from him and he said, whatever I can, I do my best. And yeah, yeah, and... A year after we just uh, get out of uh, get out from Afghanistan, and uh, you know when the yeah, I, I, it 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 became pretty evident that after twelve months of of applying, mm -hmm. that Zach had to 
focus on his family and, and his and his duties within his home, even though he couldn't leave, even though he couldn't work. He couldn't keep putting, you know, these hopes in this application where, where we're clearly we weren't getting making any progress. And so uh, when he says, uh, I've got to go teach, try to teach these little boys, you, you tell everybody I said hello. You know, it was sad, but uh, you can't keep trying to put all your hope in this process that clearly isn't going anywhere. Uh, I know, you know, with the time we have left, I just I know it had to be frustrating for you to see everything that led to that disastrous uh, exit and, and the decisions that were made in terms of, of putting, you know, unnecessary American lives in danger and the like, I think is something that is of enormous frustration to Americans who witnessed it. What I would ask in terms of your attitude towards it now is what advice would you give to your fellow Americans, Tom, about how to treat those Afghanis who've been able to make it over here, um, how we ought to respond to them in our communities. Uh, I wish I could say that they are met with welcome arms everywhere, but that's not the truth, as we all know. What would you say to them about how they should treat these new fellow Americans? Yeah, as, as, as frustrating as it was to watch that scene unravel, there, you know, there's there is one thing that's worth noting, and that's the bravery of those 18-year-old Marines uh, yeah. line out there in an impossible situation and, and, and doing whatever they could to keep America's promises. And, and I, I think, you know, what would I say to, to somebody uh, about our Afghan refugees? Zach works at a cancer hospital hanging drywall in San Antonio, Texas, six days a week for 12 hours a day. Zach is doing the hard jobs that no one else wants to do. And that's generally what these interpreters are doing. They're fulfilling vital roles in our communities and, and, they're, and they're taking the tough jobs and, and, and all they want is an opportunity. And, uh, you know, I'll talk to Zach after uh, over 100 day degree down in Texas, hanging drywall all day. And he still has a positive attitude, still thankful for an opportunity to, to ha that his family is safe, mm -hmm. uh, that he can ha that he can work. And, and so uh, I, I would say that these people um, enhance uh, not only the communities, but the country. Uh, and, and we're lucky to have them. Zach, how do you like San Antonio? <laughs> yeah, I like it uh, very well because uh, as a good environment and we have a uh, our Afghan society and Afghan people. Also, my cousins living there. Uh, we just uh, go in on a weekend in each other house, mega parties, and I like it very well. It's a good, good place it's and good, good people around us. It's a good place to eat, that's for dang sure. <laughs> well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk to me today, uh, and uh, good luck with your book, and and thank you so much for your service to our country. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So after all that, it turned out to be a complete expectation matchup. 
for all of Liz Cheney's, uh, you know, perhaps last chance efforts to make some kind of impact. Ultimately, she ended up having one of the worst outcomes in terms of any uh, sitting incumbent uh, that has happened historically in the House. You do not see that kind of loss without there being major factors going on. And obviously, those are all familiar to you by now. Certainly, you can say that this is because Wyoming is a very red state, one that uh, was overwhelmingly in favor of President Trump over Joe Biden, one that really was frustrated with Liz Cheney's uh, continued actions after January 6th to be a thorn in the former president's side and to those uh, that were you know, close to him, allies to him. Uh, but one of the things that I think we should step back from and appreciate about why we even ended up in this predicament is that Liz Cheney was not particularly good at doing the job that she was elevated to as conference chair of the GOP. Even before the January 6th committee, well, years ago, uh, you saw the kinds of conflicts that emerged where she would even go after someone like Thomas Massey, uh, in, in part because she felt like she could, because uh, at the time, President Trump was being critical of him, in ways that split the conference and uh, provided some unnecessary tension with fellow Republicans. As a member of leadership, uh, rather than really lead her party, she seemed to be marching to the beat of her own drum, which is something you can do as a member but not as something that you're really expected to do when your primary job is raising money and supporting the GOP cause. Obviously, this was an untenable situation. And she decided to run for reelection as opposed to someone like Adam Kinzinger, who decided to retire. And I think that, you know, she can talk about uh, comparisons to Abraham Lincoln, comparisons to Winston Churchill and the like, which we've seen bandied about by her media allies in the past week. But the, the fact of the matter is that if she was a better politician, I think that she would still be back in office. Now, I can say that, you know, I think that's a real shame. I'm in favor of big tents generally. I think that there are people who you know, when when they're voting down the line and they're voting, you know, 90 percent of the time for, or, you know, the conservative cause or something like that, I don't think we should get too hung up on the 10 or 15 percent where they're breaking away. In, in fact, by some measures, Liz Cheney was as a vote uh, more reliable than a lot of other people. Even the person who replaced her, Elise Stefanik, uh, broke with uh, a lot of Republican leadership and with President Trump on many votes and is considered more moderate than someone like Liz Cheney. But I think that one of the things that we have to keep in mind here is that this is a team game. Uh, politicians are, are forced to be part of teams because of the makeup of our bipartisan system. And that's one that, you know, really lands them with a lot of different odd bedfellows occasionally, uh, given their personal animus uh, or their you know, inability to get along with people based on whether that's their priority set, their policy set uh, or, you know, the, just the general culture and the attitude of the time. Someone like Paul Ryan, who I have enormous respect for, is also someone who's viewed as anathema by a lot of the people who back Donald Trump. And yet it was Donald Trump who signed Paul Ryan's you know, biggest achievement, this tax policy reform as president. So I just don't think that you can you know, look at these things as being purely about uh, you know, policy disputes or political disputes. Uh, they're also about personality disputes and the inability of certain people to get along with others. Uh, personally, I think that we should be able to get along even as we're disagreeing. We can have vociferous fights. We can have loud fights. We can ye have yelling matches. I mean, heck, the late Don Young, who uh, currently Sarah Palin is 
one of the four remaining uh, people who are going to go and vie for his seat, uh, you know, very infamously, you know, uh, pulled a knife on a guy once, you know, it's, 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 politics is not something that, you know, is necessarily going to bring in uh, shrinking violets and people who are, you know, not going to be confrontational. There are plenty of hotheads. There are plenty of plenty of people with, uh, you know, temperament issues and the like. But one thing that I do think is inappropriate and is unfortunate about the way that Liz Cheney left the scene is she did a lot more to cater to uh, the priorities of uh, the media set, the elite set that wants to see not just Donald Trump destroyed, but see the Republican Party destroyed. I think it was very telling. One of her last acts in terms of uh, before this primary played out was to you know give an interview where she said that she thought that Ron DeSantis was unacceptable. Now, Ron DeSantis may be you know Trumpian in attitude. He may have certain aspects of him uh, that seem to come across that way, as opposed to someone like, say, a you know, a Glenn Youngkin in Virginia or something like that. But in practice, their policies are very similar. These are not people who are far apart on the spectrum. They certainly belong within the same party and the same coalition. Being able to get along, being able to navigate that reality is something that I think is of the utmost importance when you have a party that has steadily, you know, lost the majority of the people in the country. I don't say that lightly. I mean, the, the simple fact is that Republicans don't tend to win the popular vote. They win by dint of the electoral college, the makeup and the way that people have sorted out within these states. Uh, and the fact that Democrats can, you know, overwhelmingly pull in the votes from states like California and New York doesn't make up for that because we don't have a purely democratic system. We have a system of the United States. And that's something that I think is, you know, uh, important to understand. It was not that long ago that Republicans, people like Ronald Reagan, even, you know, who are truly conservative by any measure, you know, are people who could contend for massive national majorities. Richard Nixon being the same way. Getting back to a point where you have arguments within the right that look more like the arguments between, you know, the Reagan wing, the Nixon wing of the Republican Party is, I think, a very good thing and will result ultimately in candidates who don't have to thread the needle with uh, all these various slim majorities in, in uh, very key states, but instead are of the mindset that they can win by five or six states or even more. That's that type of, of historic win is not something that Republicans should consider so far from their reach that they're unwilling to have the kinds of disagreements and disputes within their coalition that I think are important for any healthy party to tolerate. Now, Perhaps Liz Cheney went too far. Perhaps she became just too much of a pain in the butt for a lot of Republicans. And she certainly didn't seem to have any kind of, of humility about it. You see this last uh, round of ads, for instance, featuring her father and, and saying that, you know, that Donald Trump represents, you know, the, the biggest threat to the republic. I just think that if anything, uh, both the incidents of January 6th and everything else that came around it are proof that the Republic is stronger than something like that. We were not on the cusp of having some new um, uh, regime in America led by the guy in the Viking hat, you know, uh, from the floor of the Capitol. This was not something that was going to happen. It was not some kind of insurgency. It was instead uh, a riotous protest that got out of hand and the results, sadly, in, uh, you know, the death of, of one of the the unarmed protesters and, and obviously damage to the nation's psyche and a lot of other terrible things. Everybody knows what that was. Uh, they don't want to go along with this fiction advanced by Liz Cheney and her media allies. And of course, those Democrats on the opposite side of the aisle, that this was some kind of true insurgent threat to the American system of government. 
That's just not true. And for her to go out that way, I think was a real shameful event. And it's not something that's going to be looked back on with pride. I think with the, the more perspective that we have on that day, everything that led up to it and the people surrounding it, uh, it actually says a lot about how strong our government is, that there were natural points of resistance to this. Uh, and I don't think that that's being changed by the fact that there are a lot of people who voted for, uh, you know, the the uh, the various candidates who were going out there and tried to, you know, both make a stand for impeachment of, of Donald Trump after January 6th, but also that wanted to, you know, engage in a lot of these things, I think, for their own political advancement within the media. Strange new respect is a very odd motivator. And how quickly we forget uh, that Dick Cheney was Darth Vader, uh, that, uh, you know, that George W. Bush was some kind of uh, incompetent warmonger, uh, that every Republican who basically has any chance of winning anything turns out to be compared to Hitler, uh, see Glenn Youngkin himself. Uh, and then it turns out that, you know, once they are compared to uh, the uh, other conservatives in the mix, if the media likes them, it's never really a good sign. One of the things that I think is important though to take away from all of this is that the conservative movement as a whole is bigger than someone like Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney was around for a short amount of time. She will not be remembered for a storied uh, congressional career or one where she had any amazing impact in terms of any policy. And so to put her on the same threshold, uh, on the same pedestal as some of these other people, I think is, is truly uh, ridiculous uh, and surreal in many respects. But I also think that if Liz Cheney ever had the chance to you know, get into a position of actual power uh, where Democrats had to make a decision about whether they were going to uh, support her or not, they would all flip around and they would all bring up all the reasons that they can't do that because she's some horrible conservative given her voting record. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.